A baseball game, a day in a park with friends and family, fishing in a remote stream, work, travels, providing for loved ones, or heading out for adventures. Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. The original Guide to Men's Health is presented by the Washington State Urology Society to help take you through the steps necessary to get the most out of life. If you have invested in a retirement plan for your future, why not invest in your body? After all, it makes better sense to retire healthy and enjoy your future. These podcasts are a guide for how to take care of yourself. If you take care of your car and maintain it, why not do the same for your personal machine and your body? If you know you should but haven't yet, the information in these podcasts contains some easy recommendations for where, when, and how to get started. Follow the podcast as we explore men's health with renowned experts and embark on a journey towards better health. Hi, this is Dr. Richard Pellman, your host of the original Guide to Men's Health, brought to you by the Washington State Urology Society. What does young and adolescent male health have to do with men's health? Everything, of course. It is the foundation for a future of well-being and sound lifestyle choices. Let's explore the issues facing young and adolescent males in this episode of the original Guide to Men's Health. It's my pleasure to speak with Dennis Barber Esquire. Dennis is the president and CEO of the Partnership for Male Youth. So in our exploration of male health, it is vitally important that we begin with young men, with male youth, with those who are, in a sense, invulnerable. They have good health. They feel that they are on top of the world. Why, do they, why would they even need to uh, seek health care? So the importance of young males entering the health care is paramount. And I'm going to ask Dennis some questions about the partnership and its role in sort of formulating uh, ability for young men to be entering into healthcare. Or what direction are they taking? What role are they playing in achieving the goals for giving young men the opportunity to learn more about what they need to do to take care of themselves? And what is the partnership? So it's my pleasure to introduce Dennis Barber. And Dennis, uh, why don't you give us your thoughts, first of all, about the importance of young men entering into the healthcare system? Well, by the time that most kids reach puberty, 80% of them actually reach puberty, they stop seeing a pediatrician. And in the case of um, females, they, their care usually transitions over to gynecologists, whereas males stop seeing healthcare providers, period. Their only interaction with the healthcare system is, is episodic if they need a, um, a sports physical, for example. Um, but on the whole, they don't have continuity of care. The, and in fact, the, the danger to them is uh, there are a number of things for, for which they're at much greater risk than females. For example, the ADHD diagnosis rate is four times that of females. The suicide rate is three times that of females. They engage a lot of risky behaviors that females don't engage in, um, so their injuries are, are quite a bit greater than females. So they're at risk for a number of things as it is, let alone being outside of the healthcare system. They're not, they're not being um, adequately uh, overseen. So the emphasis for a young male obviously is going to be different uh, generationally <laughs> than the 70-year-old. Tell us a little bit about the partnership and your, uh, your board of directors, those who are giving you input, and, and what is what are sort of the thought process about how to reach the youth? Well, obviously, we, we deal with um, young males from 10 to 26, and obviously you, you, the, what appeals to a 10-year-old does not appeal to a 26-year-old, and their issues are, are different. So what we do is we deal with um, that age range and categories. Um, for example, right now we're involved in some uh, programs at the college level to, um, to introduce males to the concept of things for which they're at risk and give them resources so that they can address those issues. Right now, one of the programs that we're working on, for example, is a peer education campaign. Uh, we're going to go out to three college campuses 
around the country and develop a model for educating college-age males about their risk for HIV prevention and what can be done in terms of treatment and particularly prevention in terms of, of PrEP. Um, the idea behind that is to get to train college kids to be able to talk to their peers and give their peers these messages rather than them coming directly from healthcare providers because they don't see healthcare providers. So we're trying to get, uh, basically, we're going to the ground uh, to where these kids are, who they talk to, and have them influence each other. So a little background about your, your board and, and your advisory group. Uh, wh who is on that? You're getting information from various aspects of the healthcare uh, delivery community, not just physicians, correct? Correct. And actually, our chair, David Bell, we're, we're very pleased that he is the chair because, believe it or not, and this is evidence of what the problem is, he runs a um, uh, male health care clinic at Columbia, and he is basically the only one in this country that runs a clinic like that that's focused solely on males, and his uh, age range is from 16 to 30. We, uh, we hope to replicate that over time. One of the things that we hope to do is to use his clinic is a model and be able to replicate it at, at other institutions. The um, board is composed of a broad range of people from a variety of uh, disciplines and fields. We've, we've gone beyond strictly looking at, at medicine to some of the other disciplines that ultimately th th the impact uh, young men's health, for example, the juvenile justice system. Um, how how young men go through the juvenile justice system, what the risks that they're, they're, they're confronted with is ultimately going to impact their health. The education system, you know, what are the policies that we have in schools that ultimately impact uh, a male's health in a, in a negative way? So we really have to look much broader than just medical care. So if we looked into the history of the partnership, uh, you really carried this on your shoulders for a number of years, and your vision in putting together the Partnership for Male Youth was? Well, when I started getting involved in this and doing the research, I found that there really wasn't anything out there. Um, there, there was very little research, and uh, in fact, uh, with the exception perhaps of Dr. Bell, who I've mentioned, um, nobody was doing this kind of work. So the first, th first thing that we did was to collect all the information we could in terms of, of, of health care, what, what kinds of uh, health care needs do young males have, how are these needs being met, so on and so forth. And we compiled that in a large database, and that basically was the foundation because we could say this is what we know, and what we don't know is much, much greater than what we do know. So we need to start, we need to start building our knowledge base in terms of, of what these kids, what their risks are and what they need in terms of their health care. So our programs have really emerged from that, but and initially we had a focus on, on medical issues. But as I as I said, we we're, we're broadening that now because you can't just simply look at health in isolation, from the other factors that impact health. So if we were then to move and look towards the goals of the partnership, uh, to amplify your earlier statements about moving beyond just medical information to the youth. How are you achieving some of these other areas of interest? Well, as I said, we're going beyond strictly medical care. Um, we need to get to the kids where they're at. And as I said before, interaction with the healthcare system is very episodic for, for, for kids um, in this age range. But specifically, what we can do is, is we can work, for example, with coaches and uh, the coaches associations around the country to try to educate co coaches in terms of the importance of these issues, that when, when they're seeing a kid for a, um, a broken knee or something, that they also be aware of the other issues that, that may relate to that. Emergency physicians, for example, that's an excellent opportunity to educate. It's a teachable moment for these young men that are coming in that are at risk, at risk for other things other than what they're there for. Um, the sports medicine folks, um, again, these the young men show up with a sports injury. It's an opportunity for that provider to educate them about other issues. There are a lot of issues like mental health issues, for example, that really are overlooked. And if we can train people that come in contact with these kids about the importance of issues like mental health, we, it can go a long way in, in changing the, um, the landscape. The other thing that we're finding is that young males, because they don't interact with healthcare providers in particular, 
they don't know how to. They don't know how to raise the question. They don't have a relationship of trust with a health care provider because they're not seeing them on a continual basis. So they don't feel at liberty to ask the questions they want to ask, particularly when it comes to sexual health. And so they're kind of left in a limbo, not knowing how to communicate with the provider, and the provider does not know how to communicate with them. So it's basically a cone of silence uh, around the entire interaction. And what's really important is that we work with young males to make them understand that it is okay to open up. It is okay to be vulnerable. It is okay to ask questions. And that that is not something that should be bound to norms of masculinity. In the recent... Uh, partnership summit that you held, you involved a committee or an advisory group of actual uh, young men uh, to see if the message that you were sending out was received well. Uh, It sounds like you're on track, but tell us a little bit about the summit, who attended, how was it made up, and then what happened. Well, first of all, we believe that we can't really get at younger males unless we involve them in the process of of, of uh, uh, this entire process, so that we have a we have a requirement of a minimum of 20% of our board be composed of young males, which it is. But the summit that we held in Washington in June brought together people from a range of fields that don't normally talk to each other, and the purpose of it was to to um, start a conversation amongst those folks in terms of d- discovering what they have in common, where they can work together to address some of these needs. The young men were. Integrally involved in that process, we it was basically uh, two days of uh, panel discussions and um, uh, lectures and workshops. And in the workshops, there were young men that were actually participating in that. And the the, the participants in the summit, they just thought that it was terrific to have these young men there because it was a dose of reality. It's it's one thing for the quote unquote experts and the adults to sit around and try to figure out what needs to be done. But these kids are the ones that know what's going to be effective, particularly when it comes to communication and, and messaging. We need to have them heavily involved in everything we do if we're trying to communicate effectively with these young men. Let's say we have some listeners who are parents with children who may be middle school. Maybe their child is not playing sports, so they're not going to come into contact with coaches or sports medicine people. And... Luckily, they're in good health, so they don't make routine visits to the doc unless maybe they have a cold that isn't getting better. What would you advise the parents to do as far as taking this middle schooler and entering them into the healthcare system? Should they? Do they need to be? Where should they go? Pediatrician, family doc? Well, family family docs, for example, and they're adolescent medicine specialists as well. Um, I think probably for a parent that has a young man that age, I think probably the most important thing to do is to start a dialogue with them. Um, again, as I was saying before, to, to, to make them understand that it's important for them to open up and it's okay for them to ask questions. So I think having a, a, a solid relationship with the young man is the most important thing and trying to engage them in conversations that they otherwise wouldn't. We were all young men at one point, or young young women, and so we all understand the stressors that come about at that time of point in life and the questions that we may have had when we were younger. So we're all basically come with the same set of tools and deficiencies. So I would say that it's the most important thing is to have strong communication with your, your kid. Looking to the perhaps young adolescent listener who maybe doesn't have that kind of relationship with his parents at this point. Uh, I know that there are laws enacted in certain states where an adolescent can seek care for particular issues. They don't even require parental consent. I'm not sure how they would go about making an appointment, uh, but there are some resources out there for uh, perhaps a listener who doesn't want to involve their parents, who feels that they have an issue that they want to discuss, uh, does the partnership have some resources to be able to be contacted, or at least what would you do to uh, give some guidance to this young listener? Most schools have a, uh, a school health clinic, which is staffed by healthcare professionals, and that, that would be the, the first place to go. In addition to that, if they're involved in sports, go directly to the coach. 
There are uh, school nurses that uh, travel around from school to school that are also uh, accessible to young men. So th that would be the, the first line that I, I would think of. In addition to that, there are community resources, uh, community health centers, um, Planned Parenthood, for example, um, places like that where they can just simply walk in the door and, and get their questions answered. The partnership, I think, had a toolkit available online. This is a, a something that you could I, I just give a little brief background to. Uh, it's really a resource for uh, practitioners, healthcare practitioners, as far as what they should be looking towards uh, for the youth. But it's also, I think, something that parents or even young adults could uh, take a look at and see what is supposed to happen at a certain time in life. Yeah, as I said before, the first thing that w we did was to go out and find out what research had been done, what it is we know about healthcare needs for young men this age, and what we don't know. And what we did was we distilled down what we do know into this, this database that's online, that's open access. But in addition to that, we distilled this, all this information down to a, a practical guide for even parents to use that has a set of questions you would ask, for example, young men of this age. It includes tutorials for what young men this age are at risk for and how we can address those risks. And basically, the example of what this is supposed to provide is there is a checklist in there so that if a provider can, when a provider is interacting with a young man, he can go through this checklist and, and at least hit upon the things for which young males are at greater, greatest risk, predominantly mental health issues, but there are also physical health issues. For example, a testicular cancer is most pronounced among young men, and so they're at risk for that, and providers should be aware of that. So what we are doing, as I mentioned before, is we're trying to craft the messages that young men will hear so that they will seek um, health-seeking behaviors. At the same time, we need to be giving them messages, for example, that it is okay to open up, that um, it's not unmasculine for them to have questions about, about their health, it's not unmasculine for them to have fears. Um, so the awareness is, is essentially the larger goal. This is awareness for young men and awareness for those in society that interact with them, and that can be their parents, it can be their teachers, it can be their coaches. Um, it, it can be anybody that interacts with them. Those folks need to have greater awareness as well. I think that in terms of measuring our success, it will come about from small programs like the program we're doing on college campuses. For example, there was a program, um, a pre-med student down at the University of Texas, Austin, two years ago decided that what he would do is, is he would start a peer education campaign about the HPV vaccine. So he single-handedly sat down and put this, this program together and reached out and got a few of his classmates to work with him in, in a campaign to engage young men in, in understanding the importance of getting the HPV vaccine and actually getting them in to take the vaccine. And he found that over a period of year, a year, that they had increased the number of vaccinations substantially among males and that two years later, that rate had held steady. That's an example of a way that you can measure success. And in, because the, this area is so broad and there are so many issues that we need to tackle, the best way to do it is to segment them and to take one group of uh, one particular age group at a time, for example, and focus on small ways that we can influence behaviors. So we have a, a population of uh, youth and young adults, adolescents, who uh, are really uh, looking towards a challenging time as they mature, uh, awareness about sexual health, uh, about uh, questions they have of uh, identity. Um, so the, you named some resources there, but then we have the young male who feels, well, I'm healthy, I'm fine, I don't have any concerns, and is not involved in any substance abuse or uh, other issues, and, well, why should I go see somebody? Yet, we understand that uh, prevention at an early age rewards uh, better health at a later age. So you also uh, have resources addressing the seemingly, I'm fine, y youth, but we want them to enter the healthcare system. How are you approaching that? 
Well, again, I think it's larger messages. Um, you know, simple things like open up, um, getting in terms of messaging and, and how we get word out there that it's important for young men to take care of their health and to be aware of things for which they're at risk, that's where we're heavily dependent upon the advice of their peers. That's why we have to have young men in, in involved in these programs. They need to design what the messages are and what the best forms of communication are to get to these young men. And the messages also need to be given by young men to young men. It's important that we not talk down to young men as if, the, as if they are, their views are not important, that as adults we know what is best for them. They're not going to listen to those kinds of messages. So peer influence is, a, is the best way to uh, influence it's interesting in that perspective because I was just listening to a piece about teen vaping and how uh, vaping on, on high school and middle school campuses is becoming uh, sort of the in thing to do. And yet it's the, the peers who seem to be spreading the information about how harmful vaping is and the unawareness of certain of their peers and that, oh, this is safe, that it isn't. And so it, it's exactly what you're talking about, that they are spreading the word among themselves. So if I ask you about future directions, say you had infinite funding and you could uh, design a program right now that you knew would be successful, what direction or what would that look like? I think that the, if, if um, resources were not an issue, I think one of the most important things we could do right now is research to really drill down, for example, to the community level to find out what kinds of things are going on, what kind of programs are there out there that are trying to address these kinds of issues. So I, I would say research is, is, is number one, but also getting back to communications and messaging, I think, is, is, is number two. If we only had one um, category of funding, I would say it would be for messaging and communications we can pretty much figure out what it is we're trying, what information we're trying to get out to young men. What we need to know is how to do that most effectively, and that goes back to involving young men in, in drafting the messaging and the communication methods themselves. So as a kind of wrap-up, uh, a final message to uh, parents who are listening, being able to have a word with their adolescent youth or young youth, young male youth about health? Well, it gets back to awareness and being alert to um, behaviors that uh, their sons may be engaging in that are ultimately um, unhealthful or can lead to unhealthful behaviors. So that it's, it's, it's being aware of, of what they're doing, what they're talking about, and basically going from there and arming themselves with information. For example, with in the area of reproductive health, it's important that parents educate themselves. Uh, some of the issues that were relevant when they were young are no longer relevant. There are issues that are relevant now that, that weren't even uh, discussed when they were uh, themselves adolescents. So again, it goes back to communication and awareness. Those are really the cornerstones of change and resources for parents if they uh, are looking towards more specifics about what you're just touching on as far as uh, some of the issues that are now relevant that maybe weren't? There are a couple of things. First of all, we do have a website. We have two websites, as a matter of fact. And there are links on those websites to information in for all of these areas. So that would be um, the, the first place that I would, uh, I would recommend they go to. And again, there are... Um, their own health care provider. Um, they can go to them for information. Uh, so those would be the two places that I would recommend they go. So your website is at the Partnership for Male Youth? Yes, it's www.partnershipformaleyouth.org. Excellent. Well, any other thoughts or uh, ideas that you want to project before we sign off? No, that's it. I just thank you for the opportunity to talk about the partnership. Well, Dennis, it's always a pleasure. I uh, really do thank you. And, uh, you know, for the listeners out there, we all have passions and 
tend to uh, look towards follow-up on what we are enthused about. I can just tell you all that Dennis really has carried the partnership on his own shoulders for years to really get this to the point where it was launched and where it's successful. And so it's a, it's a pleasure to uh, share some time with you. Thank you. today's episode of the original guide to men's health, we're fortunate to have Dr. Leslie Walker Harding, who is chairman of pediatrics at Children's Hospital Seattle, here to speak about adolescent male health. Dr. Walker Harding received her MD from the University of Illinois School of Medicine. Her pediatric residency was completed at the University of Chicago Weiler Children's Hospital and her Adolescent Medicine Fellowship was completed at the University of California, San Francisco. Through 2007 to 2016, she has held several faculty appointments at the University of Washington School of Medicine Department of Pediatrics and in the UW School of Public Health as an affiliate faculty for maternal and child health. Previously, she served as the vice chair for the Department of Pediatrics and directed the University of Washington Leadership Education Program. She also co-directed Seattle Children's Adolescent Substance Abuse Program. She then left the University of Washington to become the chair of the Department of Pediatrics at the Milton S. Hershey Medical Center and medical director and pediatrician-in-chief at Penn State Children's Hospital. She fortunately for us has now returned to the Northwest as the Chair of Pediatrics at Seattle Children's Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Leslie Walker-Harding. Thank you. So, as it is appropriate, as we're speaking about adolescents, would it be true that most adolescent males see themselves as invincible and bulletproof, and yet to say that they are a vulnerable group? Yes, I think adolescence is just a wonderful time of change and growth and realization and beginning to understand who you are in the world and who you are with your peers. Um, and it's, it's a, that time is, is wonderful, um, but it's also sometimes fraught with risk and really exploration. Um, and yes, so, so that risk, the mind is wired to really uh, go out there and you know, drive fast or climb the highest mountain or uh, really excel in sports and, and stand out and really test who am I? How is this fit? Is this right? And so there's a strong invincible part, but at the same time, you still don't quite know who you are. You don't quite know how you, how you fit with the world and yourself. And so there's this vulnerability of am I normal? Is this okay? Am I going the right direction? So as we have a broad group of listeners from some adolescents to grandparents, let's suppose you're standing right now in front of a group of entering high school freshmen who by and large have probably left pediatric care and you wanted to give them a reason why they should come back into health care. What would you tell them? One, as they have um, gotten older and can make decisions for themselves, it's really time to develop a relationship with a healthcare provider because they were going to have a lot of questions. And sometimes people look to the media for questions, sometimes they look to the internet, sometimes they're friends. Uh, and sometimes it's hard to tell what's good information and what's not. And your primary care provider can actually give you some perspective on what makes sense from the medical, from the medical situation. And things like, you know, how do I keep myself safe if I have a girlfriend? or a boyfriend, how am I going to negotiate that relationship? Are these feelings of uh, anxiety really just a fluke or is it something I can get help with and I need help with? You know, is this the hair growing here and the hair growing there, is that normal? Is it okay to take it off, is it not? You know, there are many, many questions I've had young men ask me um, when they've gotten the chance to be alone and really begin to have a relationship and try to find out correct information about their body. So as they develop, they're developing an identity along with a developing body that's changing all the while being guys <laughs> moving forward and yet there are some particular issues 
uh, that they're at risk for. There's a lot of peer pressure. So, you know, we're familiar with try this. <laughs> uh, how do you counsel young men to follow what they feel is the right path? I, I think one of the things I do is actually talk quite a lot to the parents just before they get to this age and during this age to talk to them about what their family believes because it's important kids uh, when every time kids are um, surveyed they really look to their parents for answers about what's right and what's not they look to doctors in the absence of having mentors parents you know pro health professionals they will look to uh, places that might not be so great you know so when I hear uh, about um, young people swallowing Tide Pods, you know, that they saw on, uh, the, you know, on, on YouTube or something on the internet. It makes me think, well, I guess there wasn't anybody they could talk to about that to know that that might actually be quite dangerous. Maybe they want to swallow something else, but not, you know, little pods of uh, detergent. And so sometimes I think it's important for people to uh, reach out and have, have uh, good conversations and really you know, the parents are the first group, I think, and then health professionals are the second. And, you know, we hope that they have a relationship with parents where they can speak yeah. freely, but that isn't always the case, and yeah. they can trust their health prof professional. That yes. is something just between them, even if they're under 18. Yes, um, that's something I think that uh, sometimes a doctor we would say, you can talk to me, uh, this is confidential. However, a kid might not know what that means. And so it's real important for kids to know that in every single state in this country, if you want to talk about substance use, if you want to talk about um, uh, sexual uh, questions, uh, gender questions, if you uh, want to talk about your mental health, and you want that to be private, in every state you can talk about those things with privacy. Where it becomes more blurry is if you say, well, I think I want to hurt myself. You know? Or I've had kids come in extremely uh, drive in extremely altered with drugs and so they're a danger to themselves to drive home at that point you know a doctor is going to look to your safety first if they think that there's something that's imminently dangerous they may need to get help I mean, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to get it from your family but they need to get help to make sure you're safe but talking about um, your feelings how um, if you think you know you're using drugs or you're thinking about drugs or you're thinking about having a sexual relationship those are the kind of things that can be very confidential with any health provider. And the emphasis on mental health, if somebody is depressed or in a, a not good place, mm -hmm. a, a, a feeling of complete isolation, mm -hmm. you want them to get to a healthcare professional. Absolutely, because there is always something to do. It's, it's really hard when a person and a young person, I've worked with many, who are in a very bad place and they uh, can't see a way forward. There's always a way forward and sometimes it, it helps just to get somebody to help them um, find that path, but it's always there, always. And then as uh, our group is emerging into adulthood and making choices about healthy diet, right kind of exercise, what do you counsel in general? Um, that's actually really important. Uh, young men, um, in particular, care quite a lot more than other people think about their health and what they're eating and, um, you know, how their body is developing and is normal. Uh, I counsel to really uh, truth and be careful about what you see on the internet because there are a lot of very fancy and very good-looking uh, sites with advice that is very counter to you being healthy. Um, so those are in particular things that I think you want to talk to a health professional about um, and, and get some understanding on uh, what, how you can be healthy if you want to build muscle, how you can do that in a healthy way. If you want to run faster or jump higher or um, you know, be able to sing better, you know, all of those things, um, there are ways to help and there's a lot of research on how to help people be as optimal as they can. So um, it's good to ask. The young man who is then venturing further into experimentation because friends are saying this is really cool. Uh, some of these things can be dangerous. Again, just a word of caution out there as far as substance issues. I, as you mentioned earlier, I ran a substance use, pro, substance um, use disorder program. So I, I've seen many, many kids over 
uh, well more than almost two decades of kids that are dealing with substance use issues. Addiction, uh, some kids aren't even addicted, but they use, they got an accident, you know, they had trouble. I've seen kids lose their college scholarships because of getting a DUI. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of things that are uh, be beyond just becoming addicted that can happen to kids pretty quickly with uh, substance use. You know, there's, there's a kid that I see sometimes and I'll ask, he'll say, I tried marijuana or I tried alcohol or I tried ecstasy. And they'll say, you know, that was the best thing that ever happened to me and I'm going to do it every day. And so there's, there's a risk to trying a drug. You don't know if your brain is going to react to it the first time. And uh, some people and kids in particular get addicted very quickly, uh, not like adults. If you wait till you're 20, 21 and you try something, it, you're going to be much less likely to become addicted to it. You're going to be much more likely to graduate from school, to have good relationships and develop wonderful plans for your life and your career. Uh, if you start at 13, you know, it, it, we know that most of the drugs impact how uh, the brain develops and, and the choices kids make. And um, the cool thing about being a teenager that is uh, somehow um, caught up with a substance and drug use is if they stop, their brain can help repair and you can get back on track. It's not like uh, everything's lost. Um, and there's help. There's a lot of help out there for people um, if you express it. But um, I would say, in my experience, it's a lot uh, it's it's a lot better to um, wait if you can um, or never you know but <laughs> sometimes it's hard for a young person to hear the word never but wait a little bit longer while your brain develops you'll be able to make better choices and have a better life later and then going back to just uh, general health uh, there's obviously going to be a population that know they need to be plugged into care mm -hmm. juvenile diabetics but by and large, when you're just looking at somebody without a genetic predisposition or a known pediatric disease, what things should we be looking at in this group? I think taking ownership, again, with your own health is really important. Transition can be very hard, going from having a pediatrician whom you trust that you know, has taken care of you and has helped you with your meds. and You know, you become a teenager, you get older, your lifestyle changes. What you used to do may be harder to do. Uh, how, when you take your medications, you might be spending the night. You know, there's a lot of things that begin to happen um, that make it sometimes hard for young people to uh, keep putting their health first in their daily life and uh, taking their medications if they have them. So I think it's real important to begin to take ownership. You know, when you go to the doctor, say, hey, mom, I think I'm going to see the diabetes doctor by myself today, and I'll tell him how I'm doing because it's important for you to take ownership of that uh, when you really reach the age of 18 or 21 sometimes there's an abrupt change in the kind of care you get and if you're not ready to speak for yourself and understand your own medications it can be very very uh, a very harsh transition and then moving away from physical issues but challenges of the emotional type um, let's say a young man is with a peer group the peer group goes into a circumstance where he doesn't feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. Now, what does he do? And I've heard the best thing to do in that situation is to have already had a plan made. Yes. That if you wait until you're in that situation without a plan, you're in trouble. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, the cool thing about the teen brain is that it's like on hyperdrive. Uh, you can learn things quickly. Uh, but sometimes when you come into a new situation, different from an older person who might have had that situation 15, 20 times and has some script in their head of how they're going to get out of it, um, a teenager sees a lot of things for the first time. And that pause where you don't quite know what to do, in that space of that pause, uh, you might be swayed to just do what everybody else is doing. So yes, there, it's really, really good to have a plan, even if it's um, you know, you have a code with your dad or your grandma or your, you know, your older brother. If I call you and say this, you know, I call you and say, hey, what's going on? That means pick me up now, <laughs> you know, so that you don't have to uh, say I need to go home, but maybe you can rely on some of your other friends um, or uh, family members to come get you. You know, having a code word, really, if you know that you've been in a particular situation when you go to a particular home or a particular area, 
or with a particular group of people, really trying to think twice, is this really uh, a situation I need to put myself in? I know I'm kind of vulnerable. Uh, maybe you pick to do something different that night, you know, not even have to get to the point where you have to make a decision and get out quick. Yeah, I heard a great piece of advice. A friend who was a parent told his kids that um, they shouldn't ever drive with alcohol, but if they saw a friend who was impaired get in a car, it was still going to be their fault, <laughs> meaning uh, it was still a responsibility on them to not let their friends drive impaired, and that there'd be no questions asked policy that they would tell the kids' parents that they were just going to spend the night, but not let them drive away or get in a, a situation where they could be in harm's way. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I, I know kids whose friends have died driving under the influence and I, the guilt that they feel, you know, with, with that is um, tremendous sometimes if they, you know, didn't, um, you know, they didn't get out, maybe they survived, you know, but they didn't get out of the car or there's always a time to try to keep yourself from being in a car with somebody under the influence. Honestly, a lot of times, um, even more than friends, I've seen kids be in danger with one of their family members who's driving under the influence, and that can be kind of sticky. I think in those times, it's really important to reach out to somebody else to really see how can I um, make sure that I'm never in anybody's car when they're driving under the influence, whether it's your parents, your grandparents, your brother, or your friends, uh, I, I think um, it's important to expand that beyond friends because a lot of people drive under the influence. And then in the same sense, a plan for venturing into a relationship. Mm -hmm. If a guy isn't ready to pursue a part of a relationship, perhaps physical, there's a lot of pressure to continue on. But again, a plan of what I want to do mm -hmm. and discussion about how do I get out of that? Yeah, I think in this in these days, there's so much pressure right now and focus on, on young men and how they need to uh, have respect for women and understanding their boundaries. But I have had a number of uh, young men come to me over the years who also felt very pressured by uh, the partner that they were with, a male or female, um, to go further than they wanted to. And, and everybody must... Uh, you know, we, everybody must be respected for their uh, boundaries. Um, and what I always say is, you know, if, you, if you're not really sure about the person or you're not really sure how far you want to go, make sure you don't put yourself in a room with the door closed and nobody's around so that it's hard to, uh, you know, say no if you have difficulty saying no. Don't put yourself in that situation. Stay around other people um, so that uh, you don't have to even have that sticky situation happen. Um, but I do think it's, it's a very important, I think that's another issue I think that's important is right now the understanding boundaries is critical for young men, for young women, understanding boundaries around um, uh, how, what you do with another person's body or what you say uh, to them is uh, very important and I think um, that's something that it, you must take time yourself to figure out you know, how you're going to manage that because very different from many generations before. There isn't a lot of grace given for uh, overstepping people's boundaries when they have expressed stop. And what advice would you give uh, perhaps to the parents or grandparents who are wondering why their teenager is spending all day sleeping? We call it, <laughs> we call it teenage power sleeping. <laughs> That's actually from another friend's oh, description. Yeah. But this is necessary as part of a developing adolescent. Yeah, it's absolutely necessary. I tell the kids who are doing 20 different things during the day and, and on their phone all night, you don't grow if you don't sleep. Teenagers must have sleep at least 8 to 10 hours. Some need 12, you know, but you absolutely need to sleep. You grow more when you sleep. Your, your brain works better. You wake up. You can uh, think better. You do better at school. Um, kids who oversleep tend to uh, have more trouble graduating from high school, or if they do, they don't uh, graduate. Uh, with as high of um, a grade point average as I could have. Sleep is critical. The brain in an adolescent time needs the sleep to grow, to change, to process. It's not five or six hours. Hardly anybody can live well on five to six hours. You're compromising something, so it's best to really work your schedule so you can get that 10 hours a night, eight hours a night, or a nap during the day. You know, a lot of teens take naps. That's not abnormal. And then of uh, the uh, things that 
we see with the adolescent group, perhaps mononucleosis or some of the more common issues. That, you know, what, what would you talk to the adolescents who are listening about what to look out for and what they may encounter? Well, I think just like any other group, wash your hands. <laughs> Be careful whose cup you're drinking out of. Uh, if you, you, know, you put makeup on, and I know a lot of young men who do, uh, don't use other people's makeup. You know, there's a lot of ways you can get um, very uh, uncomfortable infections and, um, and uh, uh, illnesses like mononucleosis that can maybe take you out of school for quite a bit of time. And even with, in terms of if you have a sexual life, um, making sure absolutely that you always use a condom. I've uh, noticed over the years, the last few years, teenagers aren't making that choice every single time and uh, we're seeing an increase in kids getting those uh, sexually transmitted infections and that can be prevented as well. And uh, HPV, certainly now there is a vaccine and so uh, boys should receive the vaccine as well as girls? Absolutely. Boys should absolutely receive the vaccine as well as girls. Um, there's still um, penile, rectal cancer. There are different cancers that are um, still you know, going to be more at risk if they don't get that vaccine. And it's the first vaccine we have that really prevents cancer. And the earlier you get it at age 9, 11, before you've ever had a sexual encounter, the better it works. Um, and it's, it's an amazing uh, invention that we have this now. Um, and hopefully it will lead to more, but uh, right now we have this one and it prevents cancer. A lot of the guys that I've seen, actually quite a few of them, are quite disturbed when they get warts, uh, genital warts, and the vaccine does help with that as well. So it's nice to not ever have to worry like so many young men I've had about that HP, having HPV. Uh, yeah. You don't have to worry if you get we, the vaccine. We also worry about oral pharyngeal yes. acquisition. And they, they may not see it, so it will protect them in that regard mm -hmm. also. Again, it prevents human papillomavirus, HPV, but they still need condoms because it won't stop herpes transmission, it won't stop gonorrhea, it won't stop chlamydia. Yes. <laughs> so we still want to protect them against the other STDs until they really know their partner. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the funny thing about HPV, it's a skin-to-skin -skin transmission, meaning, you know, you can, if a part of the body touches another person's part of the body that has the virus, uh, it can be transmitted very differently from some of the other sexually transmitted infections that really you need a condom to, to uh, help. So even, even more so, really think hard about getting the um, HPV vaccine as a young man. So as our adolescent continues through life, there's mounting pressures. There's school success, job success, relationship success, and a lot of peer issue again, and potential for somebody looking towards failure and becoming depressed. And mental health is such an important part of development. So again, going back to the pediatrician, the adolescent specialist, the practitioner being a great resource. What else do you counsel this group about? About really trying to reach out um, when things aren't going well. Sometimes for, with uh, young men in particular, if they're depressed, you don't see them um, crying so much as maybe they're arguing and yelling and getting in fights, uh, getting suspended from school not getting along with their family, isolating, sitting in their room with the door closed, thinking about um, death, thinking about things that um, you know, could, could hurt them. Um, and so sometimes it doesn't always look so simple like depression. Uh, but if you're a kid or you have a, a grandchild or a young man who is really uh, seeming to get in a lot of trouble, seeming to be kind of angry and um, upset all the time, uh, being suspended from school, friends, you know, kind of staying away from them. Those are signs that your child may have, or you as um, the teen young man, may have depression. And that's treatable, and it's helpful. You know, you can get a lot of help for that. And it, it's important to try to talk to somebody about it, whether it's your school counselor, your coach, your, your doctor, uh, or your parents. It's important. Parents don't always see this... Um, occurring in their kids. Uh, so it's important to let them know, um, you know, how you're feeling or you think things are getting out of control. 
and if you have guns, a lot of I've worked with kids in very rural areas who had guns, and they went to the shooting range, or you know their parents have uh, guns. It's real important to have those guns uh, locked and um, the ammunition in a different place because just 20 minutes, if it just takes 20 minutes um, for a person who wants to hurt themselves with a gun, they usually change their mind. So it's important to make sure it's not easy to get a hold of those things, especially if you uh, see yourself getting angry, getting upset, feeling there's no hope. Um, I've had kids that you know, got in a bad situation, like they were they were found shoplifting, and they you know just quickly, without even any history of depression, thought this was my only way out. I'd rather um, shoot myself than have my friends, my family find out I was shoplifting. You know, those are the times we need to make sure that the guns are really in a place of safety without um, any ammunition by them and locked. Because uh, that 20 minutes could be the difference between life or death and getting help to uh, deal with the heart situation. And the important thing is getting help. Getting help. So risk-taking behavior for uh, the hyper-testosterone <laughs> group, um, you know, it's part of growing up. I think every young man will say, I can't believe I did that. Yeah. And it's usually safe to say if it doesn't seem like a good idea, it probably isn't. Yeah. And to follow your voice and say, I shouldn't do that. Yeah, risks are, if, if you don't take risks as a teenager, you probably, your brain won't develop completely. But, you know, I, so I had one kid once that told me, well, good, then I'll go drive fast. No, you know, there are lots of different kinds of risks. You can take risks by uh, join, running for office at your school, by going out for a sport, by starting a club, by, um, you know, getting active uh, politically. You know, there, there's a lot of uh, ways to take risks uh, that will not harm your body or your mind. Um, but it is important to, to reach out there and find out who you are and kind of take a chance sometimes. Um, that's important during teen years. Well, anything yeah. else you'd like to have the audience uh, hear about adolescent, young males? It's a great time. Look forward to it <laughs> and, um, and uh, cherish those moments because uh, once you're an adult, you know, your mind changes and um, you'll have hopefully good memories of being an adolescent. Well, thank you. Appreciate your time, and thanks for sharing with us. Yeah, thank you. This completes another podcast chapter of the Washington State Urology Society's original Guide to Men's Health. This is Dr. Richard Pellman reminding you to take care of yourself. The Washington State Urology Society wishes to thank all contributors who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The Society also wishes to thank Sean Fox for his invaluable technical assistance, music theme, San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. Dave Whiting. The podcasts are the property of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the express consent of the Society is strictly prohibited. For more information about men's health, visit wsus.org or visit your physician or care provider.